We're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We'll be in verse 9 this morning. So if you open in chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, we're going to do verses 9 to 16. My intention was to do the whole chapter, but that's definitely not happening. So we'll do verses 9 to 16, Lord willing. Chapter 3. Again, still continuing. It's going to last up to about chapter 4. And it's a big part of this whole chapter. But again, the wisdom of God and the foolishness of man. And how that looks in different aspects and all that. So, if you turn to chapter 3, verse 9, I'm going to pray. Uh, Keeping your prayers. Lenny just mentioned to me, Joe. We don't know his last name. He comes oftentimes... Uh, in the evening service, and he's sung a couple of psalms, playing his guitar a few times. He's not feeling well, doesn't know what he's coming up with. The, and there's, there's so many others, obviously. Just, just don't be mindful of remembering those who are sick and suffering in the church. But, uh, alright, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, you're truly a wonderful God. And we thank you, Lord, that Well, you've given us an opportunity, Lord God, to serve you Uh, another year. We know this year is not done yet. We'll just take this day first, Lord, but we thank you that you granted us uh, to get this far, Lord, and it means that you're not done yet. You haven't returned, so you still want to work in this world. You want us to serve you in these imperfect bodies still, Lord. So I pray again that you would give us the strength, Lord God, and uh, to, to do it well, that we would understand, Lord God, really, it's the only time that we have to serve you in this, uh, in this condition, because when eternity comes, Lord God, it's going to be only for perfect worship, Lord God. We, until then, now is the time that we can, as we'll learn today, Lord God, really Receive our reward on our faith, for our faithfulness, Lord God. Certainly, at least the way I, as I see this text today, this morning. So, Lord, we lift up Joe and those who else who are suffering, Lord God, in the church with sickness. Continue to be with Connie, Lord God, and we thank you that you are with her and that it's it could have been a lot worse, Lord. So we thank you for that. Continue to be with her, and Lord, I just pray for now, Lord, that you would be our teacher, Father God, that you would show us what it is that you want us to take from this text, Lord God, and that you would help us to encourage one another and build up one another in the most holy faith. And Lord, that is why we're here this morning. Your word does that, Lord God, and your spirit does that and applies the word of God to our hearts. So Lord God, help us to get out of the way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to read verses 9 to 16. It says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building." According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, 
yet so as through fire. And I think that's actually an important verse so we don't misunderstand the text. So, just a little refresher. Last week we talked about how the Corinthian church was unable to receive the fullness of what Paul wanted to give to them. And in one sense, in the beginning as they first got established, that was fine and even normal. Right? Because everyone must first start out slow and take in the basics of the faith, the fundamentals of the faith. They need to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, understand their condition, understand their need for a Savior. Right? So that is normal. But in another sense, in the context of how it is right now, as he's writing this letter and some time has elapsed, they should have been in the position at this point to receive the fullness of what Paul wanted to teach them, which weren't his teachings, but they came from the Lord. Right? So in other words, they were kind of stuck in an immature state as a church. And it's never good for a Christian or a local body of Christ to remain in a state of immaturity. And actually, I think one can argue quite easily that it's actually sinful for them in particular to be in that condition because of the amount of time elapsed since they first got saved. Having, again, a great teacher in the Apostle Paul that initially brought the gospel to them and then Apollos and other really, really close associates linked as far as to Christ. I mean, they, they really had it very good. So it's never good to remain in a state of immaturity. And it's very easy Right now, the church in general, I would say, universal. If you take all the local churches together, we're, we lean more towards the immature state, not the mature state. And that's not good. Okay? So, if sanctification, because a, a, a lot of this is still talking about sanctification. We talk about it so much. A lot of the epistles is about sanctification. So, if sanctification is part of salvation, just try to think of this logically... And sanctification is the will of God. We know that from Scripture. And if sanctification is us growing more and more conformed to the image of Christ in this life, then maturity is necessary and maturity is in fact the will of God. Right? For us to grow in maturity. So on the contrary, again, immaturity is never the will of God. Right? So we don't want to stay in a state of immaturity. And I'm also using church in the local corporal sense. Okay? I'm using church in a, in a, in a local corporal sense. So if we're talking about maturity, we, what we also need to understand is that maturity doesn't just happen. Okay? It's not going to happen on its own unless there is some type of doing. Okay? So I believe that there are several necessary ingredients for a church, a local body of believers, to grow in maturity. And again, using the church in the local church, that kind of sense. Number one, you have to have the right leaders. You've heard this. You have to have the right leaders. Secondly, you have to have the right doctrine. Those leaders are there primarily, not that's not their only job, but primarily to teach the right doctrine that comes from Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, all that is good, but you also have to have willfully obedient congregants. So if it looks at this and you start reading this letter, you told you it's very corrective. 
this letter, it can almost seem that like there's no hope for the church at Corinth. And that's definitely not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what the, the, the book itself is saying. I'm also not saying that there was no hope for the leadership in this church. If we're paying attention to this letter, this letter is filled with hope if we're really paying close attention to it as we've been studying it. And I'm also not saying that the congregants were incapable of obedience. But I think that these principles is going to help us in our understanding of this text as we go through. So just keep them, I think, a little bit on the forefront of your minds as we go through it. So, verse 9 says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And it's interesting, maybe I'm not seeing it, but almost every translation has verse 9 with verse 8 in that same paragraph, but I think it goes more here. I understand that it can go with there, but I think it goes more here. So we already saw in verse 8 that Paul, who was the planter, right, and Apollos, in the context here, the waterer, were one in essence and one in purpose. Even though that their roles, as far as their jobs and how they ministered, were a little bit different. But we need to understand that neither one of them was in competition with each other. Remember, Paul had to get on them for their, they were creating division in the church. I am of Paul, I am of Paulos. This is all building off that. So neither one of these men were in competition with each other, and both were preaching the same fundamentals of the faith, right? If anything, they were actually complementing one another. And that's how it should be, right? You think of a church, if a church has a plurality of elders, okay, they're gifted differently, they each have strong points, they have some weak points, certainly have blank spots, right? And they should complement one another, right? So it makes sense for him to follow up with the statement that they are God's fellow workers, him, Apollos, and any other one who is ministering there in the church of Corinth. It was the same spirit at work in them both, just as it was the same spirit at work in everyone in the church at Corinth as they follow Christ. So, keeping with the analogy of agriculture, which we were learning about last week or two weeks ago, he says that they are God's field, the church or God's field. But now, he's going to move from the analogy of agriculture to that of construction. He now says that they are God's building. Right? In verse 10 he says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Anytime you see that word careful, we need to be careful and pay attention, right? For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward, and if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as to fire. So again, some more good questions maybe to ask ourselves for our understanding are what is the true significance behind the building materials, right? You have three gold, silver, precious stones, and then you have wood, hay, and straw. 
What does in verse 13, what does the day mean? There's different interpretations what people think the day means. And what does each man mean? Each man's work. So first, we need to keep it in the context of the analogy given to us. He is talking about building a structure. And the body of Christ is that structure. Right? But I would say again, not the body of Christ in general, the universal church, but the body of Christ in particular, that is in each local body of Christ here, the church at Corinth. So the Corinthian church was a local church. We know most of the epistles written to local church. You have the seven churches in Revelation. These are local church as we here are a local church. Right? So, like every structure, and especially a well-built structure, there must be a foundation. And if it's a well-built structure, it's got to be a good foundation. So Paul said he was a master builder. And the word for that is architectin, which means, as you can where we get our word architect from, right? And if you understand construction, I'm in construction, the architect is the brains behind any building project, okay? Or at least should be the brains behind any building project. If you see construction nowadays, we don't have very wise architects, let's put it that way, right? But they're the chief designers and the engineers. They make the plans that every trade is to follow in order for the structure to be built properly and everything fits together as planned. And if you understand construction, anytime one of the trades veers off from the plans, it creates problems, right? And it takes away from the final product of how it should work. So Paul can almost seem, uh, he's saying, I'm a master builder, as if he's boasting of himself, but he's not boasting of himself, he's simply boasting of Christ. He's only a wise master builder because he was sticking to the plan and his God-ordained role as the foundation layer. And that foundation was Christ. So because Christ was the foundation, and Christ is God and Lord, there was no greater foundation to lay. Amen? But a foundation by itself, if we just look now practically, trying to look at the analogy, a foundation by itself is not much to look at. If you ever looked at a foundation being built, right, we just got done reading, uh, I preached on Haggai. And if you ever look at a foundation being built, it almost looks like ruins. It's not much to look at, yet it's so vital to the construction process. Okay? Oftentimes, the foundation of a house or a building is not even seen, but it's hidden. Right? If you look at it, most of the time, you might only see a little piece of concrete or something like that. So what's seen is the structure that is built on it. Now that would be, I would say, the normal case. But this is just where my mind was going. But in our analogy here, Christ is the foundation. Right? So I think there are two ways to look at this. First, if Christ is the foundation, well, it's not a normal building. It's not a normal case, right? Because Christ is God, and nothing is more powerful, and nothing is more beautiful than he, then the foundation, which is often hidden and unnoticeable to the eye, must stand out. It must stand out. Secondly, 
If the foundation is beautiful and powerful and any other adjective that fits, it only makes sense for the rest of the structure to match it, especially if the Spirit is the one who is doing the building. He's going to use the best materials. So we have the best possible foundation, and we want the best materials. And I mentioned earlier that there are several necessary ingredients for a church to grow in maturity. So I want to look at one of those. The first one I said, you have to have the right leaders. If you look at the Bible from the Old Testament to the New, leadership is so important. You don't even need to be a Christian to understand that. Okay? The worldly people can understand the concept of good leadership. What a good teacher brings to the table. Right? What a good coach brings to the table. Leadership is so important. So let's just look at a couple of verses. 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 2, Paul writing to Timothy, encouraging him. I often refer to Timothy because I think it's, I love the letter. I think there's so much to learn from it. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says this. He says, the things which you have heard from me, what do you think these things are? Hmm? What do you think these things are? These teachings, right? It's doctrine. So the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now again, this doesn't just happen overnight. This required diligence on Timothy. It required diligence on Paul's part. It requires to, to teach Timothy. And all those that he ministered to, now that Timothy was filling the role there, pastoring in particular the Ephesian church, right? He had to now take time to truly minister and try to raise up men that would be good leaders because it's so important. Because they need to teach others the same things. So you see this thing of teaching is coming up. Titus chapter 1 in verse 5 to 9 a very similar thing. Titus, again, was like another protege of Timothy. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Verse 5, I'm reading, I'm sorry. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Again, let's not misread this and think that he's just going into a situation and immediately that day appointing elders. No, this takes time. Some time elapsed. There was, there was instruction and all that kind of stuff. There was a, uh, a vetting period to make sure that you had ones that were qualified. Verse 6, he says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, I'm not reading this to give you a whole lesson on the qualifications of a pastor. But I wanted this to point out a couple of things here. Two things. In verse 7, that an overseer is not to be self-willed. In other words, that means that, you know, what do we talk about all time in this church about the, the right way to worship is God's way, how God has prescribed that he, we should worship Him. That's the way that we should worship Him. Lord, what is it that you want us to do? Well, we need to go to your word. Your word says this, we're going to preach it boldly and do it, 
right? So they cannot be self-willed. And then in verse 9, it says, Holding fast the faithful word, that's here, the Bible, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So again, we said you have to have the right leaders, but we also said that those leaders, their primary purpose is you have to have the right doctrine. Right? So we have leadership, teaching, and preaching the right doctrine. That is so important. And then, if doctrine is being taught correctly, well, you have to have willfully obedient congregants. If you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22, you guys know that verse dealing with King Saul. King Saul is a great example of doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. Doing things contrary to what he was told that he should do. And this comes right after King Saul gave the foolish offering because he did not wait, wait for Samuel, the appointed time, right? And then we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in what? Obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed, that is such an important word, than the fat of rams. To heed means to pay what? Careful attention, right? The problem with King Saul, and with many of us at times, is we don't pay careful attention to what God's word says, right? And it's so important that if we are going to be taught something properly, you know, I, I mentioned two weeks ago how you know, the first step of, of, of repentance, which is important, is that we need to acknowledge, if repentance is turning, right? Change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. We have to acknowledge that there's something wrong. And that's great, that's the first step. But we need to move on from that. Because many people think that, you can, I'm, I, I can admit that I'm wrong. Okay, great, that's good. But now if you continue to remain there, and you don't do the necessary things, and you still have not repented. You've only done the first part. You're actually in a worse state than you were before because you're acknowledging that you know something that is true, you know what is correct, and you're doing nothing about it. You're actually doubly guilty in that, in that situation, right? So, here, obedience is important. If we're taught something, it is with the intention of obeying. Open to James real quick, chapter 1. The book of James, chapter 1. I'll read in verse 22. I'll read verses 22 to 25. James chapter 1, verse 22 says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word. And not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. There's great 
benefits, there's reward, there's blessing that comes when we are obedient. Luke chapter four, uh, 6. Luke chapter 6. You know, I'll give you guys some time to turn there. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 to 49. Luke 6, chapter, Luke chapter 6, verse 46 to 49. Our Lord is speaking. He's saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Think of how many times we use the Lord. And it's the, we mean it. He's Lord. Obviously, He's Lord. But how many times do we use it flippantly? Void of what he's about to say here. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Master, Master, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was was great. So you see, obedience is the goal. You have to have the right leaders. You have to have the right doctrine. If it's the right leaders, they will teach the right doctrine. That qualifies them as the, light, as the right leaders. Right? And then you must have willfully obedient congregants. Now again, verse 12. If any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So, taking in what we have just learned, I want to look at this text in two ways. So first, and again, I believe this to be the primary focus of this text, The pastors of the churches need to uphold and teach proper doctrine. This is their primary function as leaders. I believe this is expressed in the gold, silver, and precious stones. Can it be other good works? Yes, I do in another context. But again, that all stems from the correct doctrine. Oftentimes in scripture... These are used metaphorically in correspondence to the teachings of the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, Proverbs 2, and I'm going to read Proverbs 3, 13 to 15. There's so many examples where we see gold, gold silver, precious stones, or, or things of value and how it's spoken of. It says, my son, if you receive my words, in Proverbs 2, verse 1, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Wisdom comes from who? Comes from God, right? Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. 
Proverbs 3, verses 13 to 15. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. So these gold, silver, and precious stones are the things that are built that are good because they are come from good doctrine, right? And the wood, hay, and the straw, I believe, would represent bad building materials or bad doctrine, bad teaching. Bad doctrine is never healthy for the church. And this is where I think I need to stop and I need to remind us of a few things so we don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This letter was written to who? Huh? Church at Corinth, right? So if it's the church at Corinth, it's written to who? Believers, alright? We're not talking about an apostate church here. At some point that may have happened as the congregation grew apostate and eventually it became a congregation of no believers. Okay? But right here in the current context, okay, this is not an apostate church and we're not talking about false teachers. False teachers are... There's a difference between teaching falsely and being a false teacher. At any given moment, any one of us can teach falsely. Okay? This was a church. It was built off what? The foundation of Christ. He said, be careful how you build on this church. So think of how many preachers resolve, and I'm not talking about those charlatans on TV who are false teachers, who are not believers. But think of how many preachers resolve to worldly methods thinking that God needs help. Right? How often it's so easy to, to, to go to that. Think of how many, they may grow large churches, right? They may have thriving ministries. But they're ministries that are based on the wisdom of man, which is really folly. God's eyes. Think of how many preachers. This is so, this happens so often. How many preachers think they are incapable to handle many of the problems of their congregants? And they resort to worldly means, especially psychobabble. Okay? I'm always going to say that because I'm disgusted by it. Right? And we resolve to that not thinking that He has given us all we need to take care of spiritual things, spiritual matters within the church. So then, the next question I think we can ask is what is the meaning of the day? The day. So I believe, and believe it or not, there is there's several different interpretations, but I believe that the day is the day when all men will stand before the Lord to give an account. I believe primarily that's what it means. But I did read something by Matthew Poole, and again, I respect that reformer very much. Spurgeon, Spurgeon held him in really high esteem, got so much from him, and I'm not just going to say that because Spurgeon said it. If I read him as one of my commentaries, he has a lot of really insightful things. So he doesn't even take that approach, which I disagree. But he does make a good point that the day can even mean presently. It can be, it, there, can, there can be some weight there too. But I believe that the day, again here, is when people will give account for what they did in the body. The church will give account for what they did in the body. So those who taught doctrines contrary to that of the Lord will suffer the loss of their reward. 
I mean, think about it. I mean, let's just take it in another sense. I want to make sure I think about this before I say it. Let's just think of spiritual gifts for a moment. Okay? Think of how many people. There are many people that are so set on doing a certain thing that God has not equipped them for. Right? It means they don't have the spiritual gift for it, but they're so stubborn in their own ways that they want to do this, and they think that they're doing it for the Lord, it's going to have no eternal value. Because you can't do something in your own strength that is empowered by the Spirit. Right? So the picture we see here in verse 15, that if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Right? The idea is of a, a person escaping a fiery building with everything losing except for himself. Mm. That's the analogy that's kind of given. Mm. So the secondary focus of this passage is to all believers. So I believe it's to the, the leaders first here. But then really all believers as well. Again, using the same metaphorical language, symbolizing the same things, those members who faithfully adhere to sound doctrine and the works that come out from it will, in fact, be rewarded. And God tells us we're going to be rewarded. Paul was motivated by his reward. It's okay for us to be motivated by a word. We are not living for now. We are living for the future. Right? And we are going to, in fact, be rewarded for our faithfulness. Yeah. <clears throat> Though it's hard to look at that 15 and, and kind of not see from where I'm looking at the fact of somebody who's obviously not built with those prime materials and used inferior materials or has done a lackluster work when it comes to the, the work of God, whether it be because they haven't put their heart into it or whatever it may be. But it's hard not to see that, I see that it said, even though they will still be saved, the others still to fire. That's, that's the thing. So again, when, when, if, we're, if we're taking it, when, when Judgment Day comes, okay, again, this is an analogy. Remember that too. So when that happens, we're going to be judged for our deeds. Right? So the idea is, if our deeds are not based off what God says, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is talking to believers here. Okay? He's not talking non-believers are not in the picture in this text. So he's talking to believers. Okay? But you have believers that they they believe in Christ. They have not wavered from that. They believe in the person that we're going to have they have they have their justification right. Right? That's by Christ and Christ alone. But whether it be worldliness or whatever the case may be, they they have not submitted themselves fully to all the teachings of the Word of God. Think of how many Christians don't have a biblical worldview. I'm not going to sit there and say they're not saved. Okay? I think it's very foolish. So everything that comes to them, when they're going to be rewarded for, for their work, there's not going to be any. That's the best way I can understand it. Okay? So, because they are going to be judged. Okay? So we can't take that we can't just say, well, what does that mean? It has to mean something, right? So I think that's what he's talking about here, okay? So, and those who do not, so, I'm sorry, again, those members who faithfully adhere to sound doctrine and the works that come out from it are going to be rewarded. 
and those who do not will suffer the loss of their reward. So I believe, again, if we just take the analogy, the wood, hay, and straw are not going to endure flames, right? Fire burns that up. It doesn't do that with gold, silver, and precious stones. So I think that's what he's saying. So now the big question that has always been asked is, what is that reward? That's always the difficult question. What is that reward? And some may say that the answer is not that explicit in Scripture, and maybe so. But I believe that there are some clear things for us to see in Scripture and that we should embrace. But first, we must remember that God defines what a good work is. Okay? And we went over this with the last time we were in the confession, I believe. And good works stem from, again, right doctrine. God says what a good work is. It's got to be done with the right heart, right motive, all those things. Remember? Sean, you taught that, I believe, right? Okay, so this is so important. So good works stem from right doctrine. Saul thought that he was doing the right work, right? But it wasn't. Nadab and Abihu thought they did, and yet it wasn't. Uzzah thought he did a good work, but it wasn't, right? But only that which is prescribed from our Heavenly Lord is what qualifies something as being a good work, right? So just a a couple of verses here, and I'm actually going to finish a little shorter. Revelation 22, I want to breeze off a, a few verses. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. Okay? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. If he's saying beloved, he's talking to who? Believers. We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, here, speaking about things that are reward, something that we have in the future. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. Again, just a great principle to abide by. Whatever you do, do your work heartily with all your heart as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, and no one else, right? Uh, 25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11 I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And then, really, the most important I like is is just to stop here and end in Matthew 25, verse 21. Here, again, the parable of the three servants and the talents, right? In verse 21, his master said to him, Well done good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. 
I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now I know in 1 Peter, again, I'm not sure if this is even fully correct, but I'm just thinking of it right now where he talks about the dem- when the demonstration essentially of the fruit of the Spirit is, is in a person. It says, so an entrance will be provided into the kingdom of God. So I don't know what that means, but the bottom line is when I look at these verses, I don't believe everyone that goes to heaven is going to get that phrase, well done, my good and faithful slave. First of all, we didn't do anything to get to heaven, did we? Christ did all the work for us to get into heaven. But there is reward. That is enough for me. I don't even know what it has to mean. We got everyone. You guys have to meditate that on that for yourself. I don't know what the details are going to be, what those crowns are going to be, or whatever the case it may be. I know that pleasing Him is the greatest reward for Him to be pleased with me. I brought nothing to the table. We brought nothing to the table. Everyone in Christ will enjoy the glories of heaven. We already know that. And you can say in one sense that's enough. I get that. I think that's why this is, when we understand rewards, sometimes it's very hard to, to imagine it because even those who will have their uh, work is going to have no eternal value, let's just say believers, because they weren't built off right doctrine. It was their, they were selfishly motivated, let's just say, whatever the case may be. They're still going to have the glory of Christ in heaven and a perfect body, and be perfect worshipers. So I don't know what it is, but I really believe it's going to be more responsibility in heaven. That's kind of where I lean towards. Okay, More responsibility may be given towards heaven, or maybe, I don't know what the case is, but again, what I want more than anything is for my master to say, well done, good and faithful slave. And that should be our motivation. Again, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? That is what we are to do. I want my master to be proud of me or pleased with me. Maybe proud of me. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Because of what He has done, that, okay, our, our Christian life, we can't work for our salvation. We know that. But if it's been given to us, all that has been given to us. then we should respond by loving Him and loving each other. Which is obedience. Which is obeying the things that He has told us to do. So that's where I got, that's where I am with this. I want to do the whole chapter. I ended short because uh, I had to stop here because I couldn't. I know I wouldn't finish it. So I didn't want to have an, another incomplete section. But I really believe that that's what this is talking about. That primarily it's talking about the leaders of the church here but I believe that it also applies to everyone because everyone will stand before the judgment seat. And everyone in one sense is going to be a teacher in their own context, right? So if leaders of the church are teaching the right doctrine, those are things that have eternal value, okay? Because it's built off the foundation, which is Christ. And the Holy Spirit does all the rest. It's all going to be the same. It's all going to be beautiful. It's all going to be good. And then if you follow this, the basic principles that, listen, parents, 
starting with the fathers, are to do that same thing in their own house with their children, teaching the same things. So who do you serve? Right? Who do we serve, as Joshua said? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's very easy to roll off your tongue, but let's take that really serious. And God forgive us because we do fail. And He does forgive us. Amen. But that's why I have. If anyone has any comments or questions, we have some time. Yes, Ms. DJ. Uh, a couple little things. Um, we started out with Paul saying, follow what I do in Timothy. And um, if, any, if any people were, were careful, it was Pharisees. He had learned how to be extra careful. He was definitely going to be careful with what he did. So the foundation that he was laying was only from Christ. Sure. And that, that's, that's what he wanted. Um, you mentioned three uh, really good examples. Uzzah was one of them, and, and uh, Nadab and Abihu. Um, thinking that they were doing the right thing, Saul, well, Saul was for Saul. Uh, but th- th- we get caught up in the idea that, uh, and I, I really think this was like what Uzzah was doing, is, oh, i got to do this because it's holy and blood, but we, if we lose sight of God's holiness and his omniness, his all, omnipotence. We, well, omniness, all those omnis, is at, that we're finite and we cannot, our wisdom is limited, our understanding is limited, and it's when we lose sight of those things that we think God needs help, and we think God needs this, and God needs that, and, and oh, I know better here, and it's not, it's not this willful, you know, I'm going to step on God's toes kind of thing, it's the idea that, oh, but I really should do this, and, it, and we get caught up in that stuff, and we wind up going astray it's if we if we don't stay centered on God's spirit dwelling within us and using the things that we are already given by salvation I was looking at the phrase in there where it says uh, he's talking to Timothy and he says to be built up in the grace and I said okay now what does that mean what does that look like that looks like we're we're constantly going back to the idea that we are saved by grace. This is unmerited favor. And, and yet we have his favor. It is favor. And we, we need to remember that it's God who draws the line. He knows where it ends and where it begins. And we have to trust and rely on that. Um, the spiritual gifts, again, it's being centered on the spirit listening to God doing the directing God doing the architecture God doing the planning not us Amen. we have to be Gabe. okay with that just real quick going back to texting Corinthians Yeah. Um, I think you hit the nail right on the head with, with good works being based off of sound doctrine mm-hmm. because the context of this is foundation mm-hmm. right? and we know mm-hmm. the foundation is Christ and and so that foundation would be the, the sound doctrine of, of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the text here, uh, in, in light of it being to elders and pastors, because it is primarily mm-hmm. directed towards that, that their work would be based on that foundation. Right? They're not laying a new foundation that's, yep. that's already uh-huh. there. Yes. And I see the gold and silver, precious stones, wood and straw, 
as, as a symbol of, of methods and whatever it is, you know, other things other than the sound teaching. Yeah. And so I, I see the day, as you said, that the one theologian referenced it as, mm-hmm. as, as something, I see the day strictly to be the day of testing, because it's right there in that same verse. Mm-hmm. The, the day of testing, the fire itself will test the quality, so it's the day of testing. So the only thing that will stand on the day of testing is is, is what's been absolutely attached, you know, in the foundation uh, of the sound teaching, and then when it says uh, of the reward, it says uh, in fifteen, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, get us through fire. And, and where's the one of the oh fourteen? A man's work which he has built on it remains. Which, if, it, if he teaches us on doctrine of yep. God, says heaven and earth will fade, but my word, word remains. Mm-hmm. But if it, but if it remains, he will receive a reward. And I think of the laborer in the field. What is the reward of the laborer of the field? It's the fruit. The fruit. It's the fruit. So, yep. it, so he who teaches based on the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ that they have tested and will remain, and the fruit is the, the people, the church itself. Right, the fruit. So the reward is because if he's teaching something false, they're going to fall away. Right, they're not going to be based on mm. on, on sound doctrine. Mm. But if he teaches the true sound doctrine and they and they hold to the sound doctrine, then the tr- the, the fruit is the believers themselves, those that are that are the, the fruit of Christ. Sure, but I would also say too, the fruit is if he's teaching them the congregation who is saved something that's not right. You're putting them in the same position. As far as you're setting them up for failure in one sense. You know, they, they haven't failed in a sense that they're God's own. But again, it comes down to, again, where, what, what's going to happen when the flames test the quality of the work? You know, and I think there is said what, what Poole was saying, okay, the, the, that, that there could be a present reality to that too. Okay, you can just look at, well, well why, why are you saying this is a fruitful church? I don't see it as a fruitful church. No one's doing the will of God. <laughs> right? So again, the will, it all comes down to the will of God, and the will of God is going to be what God says. It comes down to what he teaches. So, Amen. That's why it's so important for us to cling to this and be satisfied with this and not want something else. There isn't anything else better than what God has said. It's the best possible thing in the world. Right? As he is the greatest in the world. Everything that comes from him is good. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. So we should embrace those things. So we have to get into church. So let's pray. Father, again, Lord, I thank you for, Lord, I, I thank you really for what your spirit will do with this message. It really has nothing to do with me or anyone else, Lord. So I just pray again that as you convict each individual here and teach them and maybe Lord God show us all where we're lacking where we need to get more in tune with what you have said if we're doing maybe a good job by your grace Lord God and put a spirit of steadfastness in us to continue not grow weary in doing good and Lord, again, we just thank you that, Lord, we, we have your spirit to, that gives us the ability to do all this, Lord. We can't do any of it in our own strength. So, again, Lord, 
Help us to believe in the power of the Spirit that's in us, Lord God. Without faith, it's impossible to please you. So help us to please you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.